Our families pass on traditions, values, and relationships that are priceless to our children. And as Catholics, we can help our children find even greater riches of faith and friendship with the earliest Christians. Today's guest, homeschooling dad and best-selling author, Mike Aquilina, is here to guide us into cultivating friendship with the early church fathers. Welcome to Homeschooling Saints, the podcast that helps you create the homeschool you love for the people you love. Our host is Lisa Maladnik, a Catholic life coach, TV host, best-selling author, and an instructor at Homeschool Connections. Before we get started, remember to subscribe to this podcast so you never miss an episode. And if you're watching on YouTube, click the bell to join our channel. Hello and welcome. I'm Lisa Maladnik. Today we are talking about cultivating friendship with the early church fathers, and our guest is Mike Aquilina. Mike Aquilina is author of more than 60 books, including last year's St. Joseph and His World, and his new book, Friendship and the Fathers. He is executive vice president of the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology. He also serves as contributing editor of Angelus News and general editor of the Reclaiming Catholic History series published by Ave Maria Press. He hosts the Way of the Fathers podcast for Catholic culture. He has co-hosted 11 television series on EWTN and two independently produced documentaries on the early church. Mike is also a poet and songwriter whose works have been recorded by Dion, Paul Simon, Van Morrison, Bruce Springsteen, Amy Grant, Jeff Beck, Peter Frampton, Ricky Lee Jones, and many others. He is married and the father of six children and a grandfather. Welcome to the program, Mike. Hey, thanks for having me, Lisa. Oh, gosh, it's so much fun. Um, I love your books. I find them very accessible. And and I also find that you give the reader the opportunity to really read the Church Fathers. Like, you make it accessible. You break it open for us. You kind of provide that welcome mat. Um, so, I just out of the gate, I just want to assure anybody listening to this, if you're new to homeschooling, you're not sure you, you can tackle something this kind of erudite, do not worry. Mike is there to, to walk you through it, and, and we always have a really good conversation. Uh, So, uh, any comment on that, Mike, as far (laughs) as the accessibility? (laughs) Yeah, well, I mean, the fathers themselves were not academics. Most of them were not scholars. Uh, Most of them were pastors. And uh, and they were writing for people like themselves, people like us, right? Uh, We don't have doctorates. What I try to do is give people the information they need to understand uh, the, the the parts, uh, the passages in the Fathers that might be obscure because culture has changed so much and, and technology and other circumstances. Um, but then let the Fathers speak for themselves as much as, much as possible uh, and uh, put the story out there, uh, again, as much as possible in the words of the Fathers. And people do find the story exciting and accessible, as you said, and um, and and it's part of our heritage. You know, this is what made us what we are. A father is someone who precedes us in time and makes us who we are. The fathers do that for Christians today. Mm, how beautiful. And for any fathers listening and moms too, just appreciating that the leadership of the father, that spiritual role. Um, tell us a little about how your family came into homeschooling. What part did that play for you as a father? Well, I was kind of attracted to homeschooling. I I, um, I worked in the tech field for a number of years, and one of my coworkers uh, 
was an engineer uh, and uh, he was an evangelical, had a big family and uh, they were homeschooling. Now, this is back in the day when there weren't a whole lot of homeschoolers out there. Uh, so he was the only homeschooler I, I knew. He's the only homeschooler I'd really heard of. <laughs> so uh, this is back in back in the uh, the 80s, the late 80s. Um, so I, I kind of admired what he was doing with his family. Um, my wife wasn't interested in it at all. She had read one book on homeschooling, and it just didn't make it attractive to her. It wasn't um, – she didn't think it was compatible um, with with her views of parenting, at least as it was portrayed in that book. Uh, and then my son got to kindergarten age, and he was a little scrawny runt of a kid. He was very eccentric and <laughs> and, and very willful. So my wife – tried to imagine him in social situations and in a classroom and and receiving orders from a teacher <laughs> and my, she could not imagine this right she just could not imagine this so she couldn't bring herself to send him to kindergarten uh she said i'll wait a year i'll homeschool for kindergarten and so she did, and she bought all this curriculum material and everything, ended up not using it <laughs> at all, but she fell in love with homeschooling. She really did, and uh, we've never looked back. So um, at now we've, we've homeschooled all six of our children through all uh, 13 years of a standard education, you'd say, uh, and, and we loved it. You know, we never had any regrets about it. Uh, we never felt like the kids were really missing anything, at least nothing, uh, nothing that um, nothing that that we'd want them to miss. Right, right, exactly. And I love that she started out with a plan armed to the teeth, right? <laughs> But then yes. the child and and the Holy Spirit and the family and yeah. everything just kind of starts to grow together, right? And emerge yeah. as a as a way of being together. Well, my son has been laboratory tested and proven to be the most willful creature on God's green earth. He's 32 years old now, 32. Yeah, he's 32 and he's still <laughs> that way, you know? Uh, he's very contrarian. He's very um uh, you know, he 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 has to argue with you, and he was that way when he was four years old. He was that way when he was five, and and so on. Uh, so um, so yeah, uh, it, it, he made he made it he made it interesting for us in that first year because you know we'd tell him, well, follow the instructions in your workbook, and he wouldn't follow the instructions in the workbook. He would show, he would demonstrate that he had a mastery of the material, but he wasn't about to color within the lines. You know that was not. <laughs> His thing, wow. so um, so gradually we 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 contented ourselves with knowing that he mastered the material, you know, and let him have his little rebellion by not coloring within the lines. Um, I've come to appreciate his contrarian nature in his adulthood because I've watched him push back against a very weird culture. My son also went into the tech field, you know, and it was kind of uh, kind of off the wall in some of the places he's worked, you know. But he's been able to work with a lot of different people and be himself. He doesn't feel he has to conform to anything that's out there, you know, um, because that's the way he is by nature. And gradually, uh, his father learned even to respect that over time. 
Yeah, and that is a process too. I mean, we're growing with our children. And I love what you said about how that spirit came in handy. When my daughter was little and was a very willful little one, uh, <laughs> bright and full of logic that sometimes defied mine, um, my mother-in-law said very wisely to me that that strong spirit would serve her well in life. And so I started yes. to respect it more myself instead of constantly fighting it. Yes, yes, yes. And you know, that's been our experience and it's it's very positive. It's uh it's a good thing he's the way he is. Yeah. And and I almost feel like God was sort of delightedly planting that as your first child to to make yeah. it impossible for you to do anything else. <laughs> well, he 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 certainly made all of the others look easy. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Even all of them combined. <laughs> Awesome. Awesome. I think of so many of the saints who had kind of extreme personalities. Too, oh, and yeah. It, and it's exciting. They're neither, uh, you know, they're not lukewarm is what you, you might say. <laughs> right, right. Right. Okay. So, how about you as, a, as an inquisitive person who you were using your brain to tackle, tackle technical problems and doing all of that? Um, interesting to me to find out that you were in a tech field because I was thinking to myself, this is a guy who writes rock, right? And <laughs> your fallback was biblical scholarship. Like, th this is the perfect homeschool dad because you defy the odds in every direction. But now <laughs> I see a, a little more clearly that you started off with like a, a regular job, you know, like yeah. a nice respectable respectable career. Um, but what drew you into the study of the early fathers? Uh, you know, I think when I was a little kid, uh, I, I wanted to be an archaeologist. I was, I was fascinated by things that were ancient, no longer here, you know, like every little boy and most little girls, I think these days, I was really interested in dinosaurs and the fact that we pulled these skeletons out of the ground, right? Crazy. And then I learned, yes, I learned about <laughs> ancient cultures. And uh, I remember uh, at a very early age, I read, I read Schliemann's uh, account of the discovery of Troy, right? Ooh. And so I wanted to be that. I wanted to have that kind of job, the kind of guy who just went over to some foreign shore, stuck his trowel in the ground and turned it up. And there was gold and there was <laughs> some significant discovery, something fascinating, something beautiful. Right. Uh, so I wanted to be an archaeologist. And I read a lot of those kind of oversized time life books on ancient cultures with really great glossy photos of of ancient death masks and that sort of thing wow. got into it um and uh and and gradually you know you learn what an archaeologist really does and what an archaeologist really does is spend about six years with a toothbrush in one hand and a toothpick in another kind of poking through sand and not really finding much <laughs> right right <laughs> <laughs> so, so I mean, once I learned that, eh, it's not so interesting. But, um, uh, but I, I continued to have this fascination with antiquity. And when you read the books of the ancients and you try to um, to get into their world, uh, you're um, you're kind of you're you're kind of building an imaginative world in your mind as you read them. Well, you know, that kind of scratched the itch for me. And uh, I loved reading the early Christians, the, the church fathers. What fascinated me most, especially once, uh, you know, I got a little bit older um, and people challenged my faith. It, it really fascinated me that if you look at the church in the time of Clement of Rome, 67 AD, if you look at the church in the time of Ignatius of Antioch, 107 AD, the very early generations of the church, if you look at the church in that time, it looks like a Catholic parish. It has all the elements. You know, it has a hierarchy that we know. 
uh, of of bishop, priest, and deacon. It's got the um, it's got the sacraments. It's got baptism. It's got the Eucharist. It's centered on Jesus Christ, who is true God and true man. It's using that language, you know, and um, and it's it's uh, it's really interest. It was really interesting to me and apologetically useful. I grew up in a town where everybody was Catholic, and the first Protestant I met, I married. But, uh, <laughs> but the um, the uh, you know, uh, once you get out of a ghetto like that, you know, you're you're challenged by others, and and you should be challenged. You should be challenged to grow in your faith. Mm, yeah, that's really neat. With every answer you give, I can think of five other topics that we could springboard <laughs> into. Uh, so interesting. Um, talk a little bit about how your exploration and connection with the 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 and antique or antiquities of, of our faith um, have been a blessing in your family life. Mm, that's interesting. Uh, well, I guess uh, my kids have kind of grown up with it. And when, they, when they've been challenged in college, they've been able to pu- push back. You know, my, uh, one of my daughters had a, a history class with a, uh, with a professor who, 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 who seemed to think that that the Catholic Church was the great malignant force in history, and he was constantly, constantly just railing against Catholicism, you know. But she knew a bit about Christian antiquity because she used to go with me to my talks, you know, and work my book table, and she she heard everything I had to say, so she was able to push back. And then, uh, uh. You know, she another one of my daughters was taking an art class, and her press professor started talking about the glories of antiquity and how great it was to live there, and how there's really no downside, and Christianity ruined everything, right? Uh-huh. Uh, especially for artists. And my daughter said, "Well, you know, it wasn't the best world for women." Because if you were born a little girl, you probably didn't see the second day from your birth, and he he had to concede the point. You know, mm-hmm. so my daughter was there to push back. Both of my daughters, they were there to push back in those classes, and they had the material because they'd heard it in passing. Really, I, I, I don't know that I've ever sat down and given them lessons on these things, but we've had endless conversations about these matters down through the years, and they heard me doing my work as well. Yeah, I, I, I want to just draw a line between this connection with the past and this. The idea of having an adventure of faith. Hmm. We, we're on an adventure homeschooling. We're on an adventure in our marriages. Yes. We're on an adventure with God as we grow. And here are your kids connected to this incredibly intriguing past that lays the groundwork in a really powerful way that yeah. in some respects has not been disrupted. <laughs> yes. And so that's like this mysterious, uh, amazing thing. Yes. Um, not sure where I'm going with that, but, well, but pick up on that thread. I'll, I'll tell you where I where I go with that, where my mind goes with that, and some of the exciting times I've had with my kids. You know, uh, uh, when you go to a museum and they're able to see these things, uh, because I think they picked up that fascination for these ancient things and these treasures that are there, and you can actually see them in museums. Well, when you go to a museum and you kind of know your way around, uh, I'm thinking in particular of the Cleveland Museum of Art, uh, Detroit's Museum of Art. And, uh, and the Metropolitan Museum of Art, you go into one of these uh, with your kids. And if you've done a little bit of homework, you can guide them to the things that are really illuminating for the faith. You also gu- guide them to a lot of other fascinating things to see uh, that, will, that will 
uh, kind of fire their imagination. But but the the Metropolitan, for example, has a great Coptic room. It's an enormous room, as big as some museums, with Coptic pieces from the early church. You know, so you can see pottery, you can see artwork, you can see vestments because the Egyptian soil and climate kind of preserve these things better than other climates do. So you, you almost have a time capsule from the early church. But the others too that I mentioned, the Cleveland Museum of Art and the Detroit Detroit's Museum of Art, they have great ancient Christian collections. If you just walk through, your kids will see the ancient church before their eyes, and they'll see that the ancient church had certain things that the Catholic Church today has devotion to the saints, um, the use of sacramentals, including holy water, uh, because they're they're going to see the vessels for holy water. They'll see the vessels that were used in the Holy Mass in the fifth century, and so on. Uh, this can be an exciting thing, and again, it fires the imagination. It's not enough just to know facts. You have to have the sense that I've seen it. I've seen it with my own eyes, and that's an exciting thing. Now, my work itself is an adventure, and I get to go to pretty exotic places. So um, uh, when the kids were growing up, I just made it a point. My wife doesn't like to fly at all. So <laughs> I wanted my kids to see some of these places. So whenever I was going overseas on business, I tried to find a way to get one of the kids to go along with me because I'm already all expenses paid because I'm doing my work, right? So I try to get one of the kids to go with me and give them that experience as well. And, and that too was really great for, um, for again, forming a Catholic imagination because they saw these places overseas that are, that are just pretty, pretty remarkable and are part of the faith, really. Yeah, and they absorb your enthusiasm, too. I think that's important to point out that whatever the parents are passionate about, their children will pick up on. It may not yes. emerge in their lives exactly the same way, yeah. but it becomes a relational piece that you become that bridge to the past through the thing that lights you up. Yes. And they they learn to be lit up. Yes, yes. We have a bookish culture here, too. Um, and it happened by accident. When my wife and I were first married, we didn't have any money at all. So we couldn't afford a television. And um, a couple of years went by and the money situation got better, but we, we didn't miss the TV really. So we, we never got around to buying a TV. And of course, these were the years before the internet. So there weren't, there weren't screens to distract us. And I think that homeschooling uh, gave us a, an interesting situation. The kids grew up in circumstances um, where they, they saw that what adults do is read and write. Those are the two things that adults do because that's all I do, you know, that for my for my living. And and my wife does this too. My wife was very active in La Leche League through those years. So she was reading and writing. She was training their trainers. Right. Um, so um, so that's what, what grown-ups do. And and the kids gradually kind of grew into that. And and they're as adults, they're all good readers right now. And uh, and some of them are writers. Wow, that's fantastic. And and I'd like to step into your new book because it has a really powerful relational theme, this idea that friendship, the topic of friendship was really important to the early fathers. They wrote about it and it and it connected into the way they evangelized. And so everything that we've just been discussing has that relational component to it. So would you just tell us a little bit about your your new book and and step us into that dynamic? Well, uh, it, it's not just connected to their evangelization. Friendship was the only means of evangelization available to the early Christians. The practice 
of Christianity was a crime. It was a capital crime. You know, if you were caught with Christian documents, if you were caught uh, at a Christian meeting, you know, for the mass, uh, you would be executed for that crime if if you were found found guilty. Um, so it was a dangerous thing. You couldn't go out and stand in the public square and preach the gospel. If you did, you'd probably be dead tomorrow, and uh, that would not be a very effective apostolate. Um, so there isn't a lot of evidence of that kind of confrontational uh, uh, evangelization going on. Uh, how did the Christians evangelize? Well, they did it through friendship by establishing a bond of trust with their next door neighbors and the people behind them, by the people who were in the market stall working next to them. Uh, the people they encountered every day, they would establish a bond of friendship and it would be one heart setting another heart on fire. Uh, Christianity has so many advantages, you know, just in, in terms of personal relationships. Uh, marriage can flourish under, under the conditions that our Lord teaches us. Um, uh, and, and family life, parenting, all of these things. We have advantages in the order of grace and in the order of nature. So, um, so the, the neighbors of these Christians, the co-workers of these Christians benefited from that context and gradually they, they learned the reason for the Christian success and for their happiness. And it was, it was our Lord. It was Jesus Christ. And, uh, and so you were able to share the gospel in a trusting relationship under those circumstances. Uh, we have lots of documentary evidence of this from the early church. And the amazing thing is how fast the church grew when friendship was its primary means of evangelization, its only means of evangelization, really. Mm. The church grew at a steady rate of 40% per decade for almost 300 years. 40% per decade. It's astonishing. Wow, if we had any kind of a program out right now that had that kind of track record, it's yes. all we would be talking about. That's right. That's right. And imagine that kind of growth in your local parish. Well, all the parishes, it seems, were growing at that rate at a time when it was illegal and a capital crime to practice Christianity. That's pretty remarkable. Mm, yeah. And it makes me think, you know, I, I remember when my sister came back into the faith, she just said she could see the Holy Spirit working in my life, and which is amazing because we hardly saw each other at that time. But again, this becomes that relational factor. They sense something in the Christian. There's something about them being conformed to Christ that That's opens right. that opportunity, as you said, to that bond of trust. We have funny ideas about evangelization today. We know we think it's something that we have to learn from the clergy, right? Or it's uh, it's something you have to take a course in, some video course, and get a certification at the end of it. Um, or you have to do it through media. You have to you have to start a podcast, or you have to have a television series on EWTN, or you have to be on the radio. You know, and I do all those things. I love all those things, and I think they have their place. But apart from friendship, they're pretty ineffective. People need to see not just the theory, but they need to see that it really works in the real world, in real lives, in order to trust it, in order to trust taking the next step. Yeah, and and in some of the experts will say, if you look back on any society that was under the yoke of tyranny, there were parallel societies that sprang up that bore witness to the people who had been indoctrinated or whatever, and made it possible for them to think differently. That That's it can right. be a real life-giving link to be that reflection mm -hmm. of Christ's presence in the world. Starts at home. 
Amen. Amen. All right. So some of us listening are very excited right now, but we're still intimidated. Um, give us an idea, maybe a little strat- strategic way to use your book in particular or anything else that you want to refer us to. How would we incorporate a book like yours into our homeschool? Hmm. That's an interesting question. You know, I think that uh, my instinct would be to build it around things that fire the imagination so that you're not just doing history the way you hated it in high school, which is you memorize all the dates on the timeline, you know, and that kind of thing. And (laughs) and you you always fail at it, you know, because it's just too hard to to memorize all those numbers and uh, and and uh, and it's boring. (laughs) So I I try to incorporate works of imagination. uh, like like the trips to museums or even you know to uh, to to sites of pilgrimage if you can to see works of art that relate to the fathers of the church to the early Christians um, also there are so many great uh, movies that are set in this time so it's good to look into that too uh, I even uh, did some consulting on a on animated features uh, about some of the early the figures of the early church saint perpetua and saint augustine so those two are out there as well they're very short animated films about the the lives of uh, of these two saints in the early church and they try to convey as much as possible about the life of the church during that time and uh, and there are there are other things as well uh, i always found it very helpful to find good books and read them aloud uh, with the kids uh, so that you can show that you're enjoying the story while while they are too, uh, it, it's, it creates a certain bond uh, that's 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 very valuable. That I would say is even better than sitting in front of a screen together and watching a movie, even a movie that that I did consulting for. Um, but yeah, yeah, I mean, just t- reading the stories aloud and, and and sharing them that way, and even then you can stop and reflect and and say, hey, you know, this this reminds me of something else, and, and go from there. Yeah, absolutely. I love that you keep referring to the imagination because there's so much in our faith that is has a mysterious nature to it. And to ignite our children's imagination with with great literature, great movies, things that have good ideas and beauty in them, uh, such a great strategy for opening their hearts to God and expanding their sense of, of what might be possible, letting them be touched by those things. Um, your book centers on friendship, and I know that it's that there's a lot of the church fathers themselves speaking for themselves, but also yes. that you comment on them, as you said, to clarify things that might be, you know, cultural or of the times or whatever, mm-hmm. so that we can read them. Would you recommend maybe for our middle or high school kids to maybe start reading some of those together and discussing them? Would that be, could you see incorporating oh, it that way? Yeah, because because the, the, the fathers are interesting. And of course, in a book like mine, I'm excerpting the fathers. So I'm really trimming out a lot of the material that, that people today might not find as, as interesting. Um, so they're great stories, you know, and I think when you read, for example, the, the chapter on Marcus Minucius Felix, a figure almost no one has heard of, right? And a, who left us one work, which is beautiful, but almost no one has read it. When you read that work, you know, you see the way evangelization happened through friendship. It's just his recollections about a vacation he took once with two of his colleagues, three lawyers, and they went together on vacation to a resort and they spent this holiday weekend together in conversation. It's full of beautiful details 
like, uh, you know, when they're walking along the way into the city of Ostia, how they saw children there, you know, skip, skipping stones on the water and that sort of thing. So you can see that the people then did what people do today. They took vacations, kids skip stones and that kind of thing. You're comfortable in that world. You're at ease in that world. Well, what happens from there? The non-Christian member of the trio challenges the others and starts asking these questions that are, are frankly, the same questions we are asked by the new atheists today. And they answer uh, in, in ways that I think we can learn from, okay? They're, uh, they, they, give them, they give him good answers that he can understand uh, based on natural theology rather than revelation. And the conversation goes forward from there. And by the end of the weekend, the guy's ready to accept baptism. Now, these are three public figures. We know of them from inscriptions from that time. They were three prominent lawyers living in Rome, all three of them from Africa. So you can't write, if you're one of those guys, you can't write a false story about the others because everybody knows their stories. So you have to tell the truth. So this is a firsthand account of one of these friendships through conversion or conversions through friendship, I should say, uh, from a very early time in the church's history, about 190 AD. Wow, that's just amazing. And as you pointed out, these are known people. They're, yes. you know, would have been contradicted if it were false. That helps us to set them historically as being reliable sources, yes, right? absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, that's really neat. Um, through your reading of this um, exploration of evangelization and friendship, that natural connection that we make with people. Did you kind of come away with your research or after having written the book and really stewed in this particular topic for a while, any friendship tips for us? <laughs> I don't know. It, like there, there are some basic things. One is, is friendship is a good in itself. So even though we desire the conversion of everybody we know, you know, our conversations don't all have to be about religion. You know, uh, the, these contentious things that, you know, we don't agree on from the beginning. We should talk about the interests we have in common and, and go from there and really establish that bond of trust so that when they do have questions, they're coming to us. You know, we can, we can offer observations now and then. We can challenge things they say, you know, because that's what friends do. But we don't have to, have to make them feel like, oh, here he comes again, or here she comes again. I can't stand these conversations. Um, and we shouldn't make these things burdensome. When I was in college, uh, I encountered evangelical Christianity for the first time. And so much of it was so beautiful, but some of it wasn't. I mean, the part that wasn't was sometimes, you know, my friends who were in these campus um, movements, um, uh, to convert everybody to evangelical Christianity would come at you and they'd give you the impression that you were their project, that all they wanted to do was carve another notch in their gun, you know, and, and, um, and it made, it made me feel icky, <laughs> you know, yeah. it made me feel used, right? Yeah. They, they, they weren't really concerned about me. They were concerned about their, their stats on the back of their baseball card, you know? Um, so I, um, that turned me off. And as a result, you know, it, it, I, I, I urge people not to take that approach to friendship. Friendship is a natural good created by God. Grace builds on nature. Okay. Grace builds on nature, strong foundation in this natural good. Um, so that, that's one thing. The other thing is cultivate a devotion to the guardian angels to jump to something greater than, than, than the nature that we see around us. 
you know, cultivate a devotion to our own guardian angels, but also the guardian angels of our friends. Go to them and ask them, how can I help this person today? Mm. You know, and 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 call upon the guardian angel silently in your heart at the beginning of every conversation. Say, you know, give me cues as I go through this conversation. Help me to know the things to say that this person needs to hear. Um, and the angels will come through and help us if we're faithful to it. We we um, we 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 grow keener in our ability as time goes on. Our ability to um, to discern what the angels are telling us about about this particular friendship. Mm, yeah. Wow. I love that tip because I've heard of like sending our own guardian angels to someone when they're in distress, or yes. you know, asking your guardian angel along. You know, having that relationship and being you know, affectionate even toward your this holy angel that yes. walks by your side. But uh, this idea of really talking to each other's guardian angels, I love that. Angels are all about communications. Uh, the, the the word angel from Greek angelos means messenger. Okay, so they want to help us get the message across, and if we're cooperating with them, if we're consenting uh, to their to their assistance, well, then we're going to be a lot more effective. We're going to have heavenly help. We're going to have superhuman help. Awesome. Uh, we've touched on this a lot, but any final thoughts about the long-term benefits of connecting back to the ancient church and to this mode of passing on the faith through friendship? How it how it will bear fruit in the long term for our families? Well, uh, you know, one one thing is it helps you get through the present. It really does. Because people tend to think, I live in the worst times ever. Because <laughs> now these are the challenges you're feeling, you know, the, the, the things that are challenging us today and the circumstances just seem so dire all the time and the problems, the problems hit home. And you think about history and you think about the, the golden age of doctrine in the fourth century and the golden age of this in the 13th century and the golden age of that in the 17th century, you know, and, uh, and it all seems like they didn't have problems, you know, but if you read history, you find out that, that the fourth century was a mess. You did not want to be alive then, you know, there was so much conflict. There were so many problems with the hierarchy, and I want to point out there's never been a golden age of the office of bishop. We, you know, today we complain about our bishops as if, um, as if they're different from bishops in past ages. I got news for you. Again, <laughs> there's never been a golden age of the office of bishop, and I love the bishops. I love my bishop, but you know what? We 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 expect too much from them. We expect them to be superhuman. History teaches us that they're just not. History helps us to be realistic about the times we live in today, about the humans that we are sharing our space with and sharing our church with. And I think that is enormously useful uh, in every in every day, in every age. Oh, yeah. Thank you so much. It's it's great to have that perspective because you're absolutely right. God intended that we live in this time, That's in right. this place, and we have a job to do, and right. we're not being thrown to the lions. We may be inconvenienced. <laughs> we may feel some hostility, and we may have legitimate fears, but we're doing okay, really, when you look at history. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. And if you're frustrated with your bishop, well, again, contemplate the fourth century when a majority of the bishops went Aryan on us, okay? Oh, and, and we had to try to try to keep the faith in spite of that. Um, uh, this, is, uh, this, is, this is what history teaches us.
Yeah, and I think I read somewhere, I don't know if this is exactly right, I hate to say this to a scholar, but I read somewhere that the first 30 popes were martyred, so that wasn't even a job you wanted. (laughs) That's right. That's right. (laughs) Oh, my. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Mike, thank you so much. It it is a delight talking with you. Cannot wait for people to get friendship and the fathers. And uh, folks, I have places where you can find Mike and order his book and... uh, any any just final last thread you want to tug, Mike, as we're saying goodbye? Oh, goodness. I don't know. Uh, for those who are homeschooling, you know, I commend you. Uh, keep 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 the momentum, you know, and uh, and I know that sometimes are hard. Uh, it is rewarding at the end of the day. And it's uh, it's so uh, it's so good to see them as adults and to know them uh, and to know that you've um, you've spent so much time with them. Uh, it's it's my experience that a homeschooled kid's primary bond is with the family because they're spending most of their time with the family rather than people other than the family, people outside the family. And, uh, and that's an essential difference. It's not some kind of ancillary difference or, you know, accidental difference. It's, it's essential. Mm, So good. Thank you so much, Mike. And thanks everyone for tuning in and uh, don't go away. We've got our short feature. Coming right up. Welcome to the Thriving Catholic Homeschool Blueprint. My name is Paula Siskinik. I'm the co-founder of the Catholic Homeschool Network, Conferences, and Community. What I've learned after 25 years of homeschooling, consulting one-on-one with hundreds of homeschooling families, is that you have to set your life first, then you layer in the school. Now, I know that seems somewhat unfamiliar, maybe even confusing at first. Hang in there. Just think about it for a minute. The only way to find balance, to have enough time for all your roles as parent, mom or dad, and teacher is to set life, then fit in school. To do otherwise is a certain recipe for overwhelm. Consider this. Would you buy a car without thinking who is going to drive it and be who are the ones that are going to be the passengers in the car? Would you make dinner? By never looking at the ingredients you're adding to the dinner, let alone open the refrigerator. In other words, when you choose to homeschool, to do something extraordinary, you have the opportunity to personalize and tailor the education of each and every child in your family. You and your children are an unrepeatable, unique gift in this world. However, Can you possibly teach so many different levels with so many different personalities and learning styles? Yes, you can. It is possible. I have personally witnessed the many, many families who have done this, myself included. These are ordinary people, but with an extraordinary desire to challenge the status quo of education. Many of these have been my sisters in Christ, ones that came before me, leading me on this pilgrim journey of homeschooling. Many of the speakers you've heard at our homeschooling conferences are those same people who have successfully done this. 
You have already begun, and when you decided to take the role of their primary educator for your children, you are not alone in that. It's a heroic journey. You have the grace of yes to tap into. Want to know a secret? Sure you do. Drum roll. Homeschooling success comes from setting just one goal per child per year. Yep, that's it. Now, I promised to tell you in video one about this cornerstone principle, and that's what it is. Because if you're feeling overwhelmed by all the umpteen choices you are contemplating right now and planning your curriculum, dare I say, you may even be rethinking homeschooling altogether. Or how many courses can I outsource? How many can I hand off? Can I really even do this thing? See, the thing is trying to be all things to all your children for all subjects is crazy, busy, and overwhelming. It just is. And that is why long ago, I retrained myself to think small. Yes, to think one goal per child each year. So how do we begin? First, you begin by simply looking over the past year's school notes, worksheets, journals, anything that you kept records for your children's work. And if you're transitioning from a brick and mortar school, look over the materials from your children's school. You will notice a subject or a skill that your child needs help with to feel a real sense of success. And every time I've asked parents this question, they knew right away the answer to that question. Trust in the grace of yes to know the answer. What's that one goal? This can be anything from learning multiplication tables to managing time to learning how to read a chapter book or volunteering at the soup kitchen to teach your child to be a little more generous and of service to others. In other words, that goal can either be tied to an academic skill, a life skill, or character and virtue education for that child. I'll see you in the next video and may God bless you abundantly. And that's our show for today. Our program is sponsored by homeschoolconnections.com. Be sure to subscribe to Homeschooling Saints and leave us an honest review. God bless you and thank you for joining us.